Is this, there we go. It's so nice to be here with everybody this morning, and um, yeah, welcome if it is your first time. It's very cool to have you guys. Uh, yeah, Paul mentioned we are studying the book of Exodus together as a church. Sorry, before we get into that, maybe some of you don't know who I am. <laughs> My name is Leanne, and I'm married to Paul, and together with a team, we lead this church that meets in this, in this beautiful building. Okay, and so I'm going to be carrying on with the series. We're looking at the book of Exodus. This is week five. Um, And we've been studying this people of Israel. They are currently enslaved under the brutal rule of Pharaoh, and they have cried out for rescue. And God has heard their cry, as Paul read earlier, and he calls Moses, and Moses is going to be the guy that leads them out of Egypt. And last week, Kyle, he looked at the first nine plagues, and today we are going to be looking at the 10th and final plagues. You are all caught up now. Um, And this 10th final plague actually tells the greatest story of deliverance and redemption in the whole of the Old Testament. It marked the moment that Israel became a nation. And it was so important that they had to restructure their whole calendar around this coming out of Egypt. This was to be the first month of their year. And, um, And so it showed it truly was a new beginning for them. And from this night onward... Every year, they were going to celebrate Passover together to remember the story of how God rescued them from Egypt, and they passed that story down from generation to generation. And as I've been reading up about the Passover that the Jew, the Jewish nation still celebrate every year, part of the meal around the table is about asking questions and retelling the story together. And the most famous question that gets asked by the youngest member of the family around the table is this. The child asks, why is this night different from all other nights? And they would tell the story, well, it's because this night marked a massive radical change. We came out of slavery. We were finally set free. We were redeemed. And many nations around the world have experienced a similar setting free, a similar independence day. If I think about South Africa, Uh, The day we celebrate is Freedom Day, which is the 27th of April, and that's the day we celebrate freedom, the first time we had a free and fair election post-apartheid. And these Independence Days, they commemorate days that nations come under new rulership. And I put it to you today that uh, true freedom is not about having no rulership. True freedom is about having the right rulership over you. And so we're going to see that in today's story. The Israelites are drawn out of Egypt and they are drawn in to becoming God's people, a nation chosen by God. And what we're also going to see is that there are two layers to the story. There's two layers happening. There's the literal coming out of Egypt and being rescued from slavery, but then there's also the deliverance from death. And so what makes this night different from all other nights? It tells the story how God saves his people. And so that's the title for today's message, A Night to Remember. And as Paul said, we are especially aware right now of those in Afghanistan who are suffering under incredible brutality. Um, And what we read today is both deeply comforting because we see that God, the just judge, will eventually judge everyone and that everyone who has been wicked will face ruin But it's also very challenging because we'll see that, in fact, we are all to stand before the just judge. 
And the question then becomes, well, how, how, if at all, are we to stand safely before the presence of God? Okay, so a night to remember, there are three points to my message. Firstly, God reveals himself. Secondly, God redeems his people. And thirdly, let us remember. Okay, so we have him revealing himself. He redeems us. And then let us remember. So let's get straight into the text. We're going to be reading together from chapter 11. God reveals himself. It should be up there. Great. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably, favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, go, you and all the people who follow, follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Just on that last bit there about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, if that's something you want to learn a little bit more about, I recommend that you listen to Kyle's podcast. He put one out on our podcast channel last week, which really deals with that question of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. It's, it's fantastic. I highly recommend listening to it. So what we see here is that the Israelites have suffered incredible brutality at the hands of the Egyptians. As we read the first week in Exodus chapter 1, they, the Israelites were commanded to kill their baby boys at the time that Moses was born. I cannot even imagine what that must have been like. And so they cried out to God for rescue. They were desperate to get out of there. And how would God choose to rescue his people? How would he do it? Would he cause there to be a big battle, you know, army versus army, and for there to be a military victory, and then the Israelites get set free? We have to ask the question, why did God choose the 10 plagues as his strategy for redeeming his people? Why not skip the first nine? If you knew it was going to take that final plague, why just, you know, save yourself the trouble and just go straight for the 10th plague? But God gives us the reason in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. So let's give it a read. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. You see, God wants them to know that he is the Lord, and the way that he does that is by revealing himself 10 times. 
He wants the Egyptians and the Israelites to know that he is Yahweh. Remember at the burning bush, God revealed himself as Yahweh. He said, I am who I am. When Moses asked him what his name was. See, neither the Egyptians nor the Israelites had a good idea of who this God was. When Moses and Aaron first went to Pharaoh um, to, to ask him to please let the Israelites go, his response was this, well, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. You've got to understand the context here. Pharaoh, as the supreme ruler of the people, he was God. He was God. And besides Pharaoh, there were hundreds of gods and goddesses in Egypt. They often had the form of a human, but with an animal head. And um, they were within all the temples and um, pyramids and all those structures. You'll see pictures of them. They could be made into idols. And each one of these gods had a realm of power. And so you can understand why Pharaoh says, I don't know your God. Who is this God? I haven't heard of him at all. And actually, if I had to look at the situation here, Right now, the Israelites are in slavery underneath my power. So even if you did have a God, he's obviously not that powerful because he hasn't been able to rescue. And I am more powerful than you, which means I'm obviously more powerful than your God. You are a dominated and a subdued people. And so between the contest, if there was a contest between the gods of Egypt and Yahweh, well, obviously, Pharaoh would say that the gods of Egypt have clearly won. And that is why it, is so, it was so important for God to reveal himself through these 10 plagues as a display of his might and his sovereign power, both for the eyes of Pharaoh, but also very importantly for the eyes of the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites, because they had been surrounded by these Egyptian gods for over 400 years. They also needed Yahweh to be revealed to them. They didn't know what their God looked like. They didn't have a place where they could worship him. And so who is he? How much power does he really have? And how does he compare to these gods of the Egyptians that we've been surrounded by? And so you have the beginning of a contest between the gods of Egypt and Yahweh. And you can just see there's a couple of pictures of what some of them look like. Um, I'm just going to give a few examples because we did go through the plagues last week. But each plague, the basically showed and revealed the impotence of the Egyptian god. So for example, the first plague where the water in the Nile was turned from water into blood, that was to scorn happy the Nile god. The Nile god was absolutely unable to do anything about that water being turned into blood. It couldn't change it back into water. The second plague was the emergence of frogs that just covered the whole land. That was just an assault to Heka, the frog, frog goddess, who also was not able to remove those frogs, was unable to exercise any power over those frogs. The third plague was when all the gnats came out of the ground, or last, they're not exactly quite sure, came out of the ground. And that was to ridicule Seb, the earth god, who was the protector of everything that came out of the ground. That God was not able to stop those gnats from coming out of the ground. And then finally, the ninth plague, which is the last one we looked at last week, that thick darkness that was experienced throughout the land of Egypt, but yet the Israelites somehow had light. That event was an absolute mockery to their supreme God, Ra, who was the sun God. Actually, Pharaoh got his name from that God. Um, Ra meaning sun, and that God was not able to provide light for them, so he was shown up as well, and so for weeks and weeks, both the Israelites and the Egyptians were starting to learn, wow, actually, Yahweh is pretty powerful, 
he's able to do quite incredible things. And they also witnessed God's patience that for nine times, I mean, 10, every time Pharaoh said, okay, 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 I'll let you go. Please just take this plague from me. God gave him another chance. But we also saw the Egyptians being weakened slowly but surely every time they were having their health taken from them. They had their livestock, their food supplies taken from them. And so God is showing himself to be all powerful. And then just finally, what else he was showing the Israelites and the Egyptians that he had the power to differentiate between the two groups of people. Somehow God knew who every single person was. He, he knew which people belonged to the Israelites and which people belonged to the Egyptians and he could wield his power accordingly. Who is this God? Pharaoh asks. He is Yahweh. He has the ability to say what will happen, to pronounce it, to predict it, to say exactly very clearly what will happen. And then he has the power to actually make it happen and do that. And you can take him at his word. He has now shown that nine times. And maybe you're asking that question today. Maybe your question is, who is this God? And my encouragement to you is to go to God with that question and ask him to reveal himself to you. But be warned, Yahweh is not a God of our creation. We don't get to decide what aspects of his character we like and discard the aspects of his character that we don't like. He is Yahweh. He is I am who I am. And so I encourage you to explore and to ask God to reveal himself to you. Okay, so when God's word comes to the Israelites now for this final and 10th plague, he gives them quite a lot of instructions of what they need to do. Do they listen to this? Do they listen to Yahweh? Do they follow his very clear instructions? We see in chapter 12, verse 28, we're going to read it soon. The Israelites did exactly what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Why? Because they had witnessed nine times that when God says he's going to do something, he will do it. And so they have, uh, they have faith in God. They trust in him and they show that through their obedience to his instructions. All right, that's point one. God reveals himself. Let's look at point two for today. God redeems his people. So up until now, the Israelites didn't have to do anything to be protected from the plagues. God just managed to protect them and put his hand over them. But this is the very first time that they are expected to do something. Let's read in Exodus 12 what it is that God asks them to do. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people they are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. What a job. <laughs> The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and eternal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. And this is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
And on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. You see, this plague is different because for the first time, God himself is coming to execute judgment. And I just want to read this quote because it says it so well. The 10th plague was accomplished without the mediation of either Moses or Aaron and was simply achieved by the coming of the Lord himself to Egypt and by his direct personal action in judgment. This intervention changed the whole situation for when Yahweh entered Egypt as absolute Lord and judge, Israel's problem was no longer how to escape Pharaoh, but how to be safe before such a God. And what was the answer? How would they stand? How would they survive? The answer was they needed to shelter under the blood of the lamb. How does God save the Israelites? They are rescued, not by fighting in a battle and achieving military victory, but by killing an innocent and spotless lamb and hiding away in their houses under the blood that is painted on their wooden doorposts. Just imagine what it must have been like that night. Firstly, you've got to choose your lamb. <laughs> I can just imagine all the wives getting together and saying, okay, you know, granny, small appetite, doesn't eat a lot. Um, you know, the, all the brothers, they eat a lot. They're going to need a lot. And you're going to now decide how much lamb you need. How big must this lamb be? Do you need to maybe get your neighbors involved? Okay, we'll share the lamb between the two of us. It must have been quite an undertaking. Now, you finally, you choose your lamb. Um, then you slaughter it at twilight. That was the instruction. You slaughter the lamb at twilight and you take some of the blood. And now your job is to paint on the door frames of your house. And if the kids in that day were any, anything like our kids, like they would be right under the, the dad's feet as he's trying to paint the blood onto the doorpost saying, what are you doing, dad? That's so weird. Or saying things like, can I help? You know, can I have a turn as well? You know, I don't know if you've ever tried to paint with kids around. Um, and so I can imagine being asked that question, the dad might have thought, you know, actually, I'm not 100% sure what I'm doing here. I'm just obeying what God told me to do. I don't know exactly why, but he's told us we need to do this. And so I know what, what Yahweh is capable of. He's revealed himself as a God who does what he says he's going to do. And so I'm going to obey him. And then they roasted the lamb and they ate it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread um, and with everyone sitting at the table, dressed to go walking, dressed with their staff in their hand, their sandals on their feet, their cloak tucked into their belt, like ready to go at a meal. And they're being told, eat it in haste, quick. <laughs> Must have been a bizarre experience and quite unsettling, not knowing exactly why you're doing what you're doing, not knowing exactly the timeline. Like when is everything going to unfold? Is this really the night that we're going to be set free? And then at midnight, hearing sounds, Hearing cries coming from houses further away, people screaming, people wailing, desperate cries, while in your house, it is absolutely silent. Not a dog is barking. And even though you're probably desperate to go outside and see what is all this commotion about what is happening, the, the instructions further on in this passage were that they were each to stay within their houses. They were, wait, they were told to wait until the Lord had passed over. And so they were waiting. 
We've got to remember they weren't rescued at this point. God didn't pass over them because they were better than the Egyptians. They're not rescued because they were born into an Israelite family. They're not rescued because of the particular nation that they're part of or their pedigree. The destroyer was coming for both. He was coming throughout Egypt. This night was to be a preliminary and temporary judgment day. God was unleashing the destroyer, the ultimate power of the universe. And the only way that anyone would be able to survive would be, was to kill a lamb and to shelter under his blood. Maybe you have some questions about this and I encourage you to keep coming. We're going to keep unpacking the story more as we go. How is it that a firstborn son's life can be re redeemed and saved by the death of a lamb? And I wonder if the Israelites understood its significance at this point. Perhaps some of them would have remembered Abraham and how Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham went up the mountain, obedient to God, despite probably not understanding exactly what God was asking him to do. And then at the last minute, his firstborn son Isaac being rescued by a ram stuck in the, bush, uh, in the bushes. Maybe some of them were thinking about that on that night. We don't know. You might ask yourself at this point, what about the Egyptians? If the Egyptians had followed the same instructions and sheltered under the blood, would they have been saved? We read later in chapter 12, verse 38, that it was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt that day. It wasn't just Israelites that came out of Egypt that day, which suggests that, yes, there probably were some people who'd had this Yahweh revealed to them and who'd realized he does what he says he's going to do. And I'm actually going to be joining with the Israelites here. I'm going to camp under the blood of the lamb as well. And that just, for me, emphasizes the point that when that destroyer moved through Egypt that night, it didn't matter whether you were from the right family or if you had the right pedigree. It was literally whether you believed God, took him at his word, and, and exercised faith through actually obeying him. And so what we learn here is that the blood of the lamb has the astonishing power to, um, of acceptance before God, to solve that problem of acceptance before God. I wonder how Pharaoh would have felt at this point. Gotta think about him. He's just lost his firstborn son. After having heard Yahweh pronounce his plan, explain exactly what was gonna happen, and then do exactly what he said, did Pharaoh regret being so stubborn? Did he wish he had surrendered to this God? You see, that night in every house, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. The lamb paid the debt so that, that the firstborn could live. A substitution took place. Again, so many similarities between this story and the story of Isaac. The ram is sacrificed and Isaac goes free. On that mountain, it was either going to be a dead son or a dead ram. A substitution took place. And so we see this idea of substitution being formed in the minds of the Israelites. And Pharaoh, what happens next? Pharaoh, who did not yield to um, God's warnings, he experienced this devastation of God's final and mighty act. He finally acknowledges that this God, Yahweh, who only a few weeks ago he knew nothing about, was a God of immense power and Pharaoh concedes defeat. He calls Moses and Aaron and he says, just go out, get out. He drives them out. Yahweh is victorious. He has no rival. He has no equal. 
And can you imagine what that must have been like? All of a sudden, you've been waiting quietly in your houses. A message now goes out through all the houses in, in, of the Israelites saying, quick, we got to go. Pharaoh is driving us out. This is our chance. And I can imagine them wondering, is this it? Is this the moment we've been waiting for? Um, how much time is he going to give us? What do we need to take? How long are we going for? Where are we going? Where am I going to spend my first night? Like, what do I need to take for that? How much food do I need to take? How are we going to carry it all? You've got old people. You've got very young children. I mean, if anyone here has a family and you've tried to leave your house quickly to get them to school on time, <laughs> you have a tiny idea of what it must have been like to get an entire household out of the house with all your herds, with all your cattle, enough food, enough clothing. What, you don't even know really what you're needing it for. You just got to get out of there and you got to get out of there fast. It must have been chaos <laughs> after the silence of waiting absolute chaos put your shoes on <laughs> where are your shoes <laughs> you can just imagine that what a night and so this night truly was a night unlike any other god redeems his people he sets them free they are free from slavery and off they go and so the final point for today is let us remember let us remember. So in verse 14, we read it before. It says, this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So it's got to be celebrated every single year. Why did God want them to remember this night more than any other night? I mean, there was no festival for remembering when Noah was saved from the, from the flood. There was no festival to remember Joseph's rise to power in Egypt. What was it about this night that God wanted them to celebrate and remember every single year? Well, because it was a story that involved God's great acts of judgment culminating in the death of the firstborn. The Israelites escaping the destroyer by killing a lamb and sheltering under its blood. It's about slaves being set free. It's about a new nation being formed, coming under God's power, God's chosen nation, and leaving behind the tyranny of Pharaoh and starting a journey with God towards the promised land. And so this is what they need to remember. This is the story they need to keep front and center in their minds every single year. So for 1,300 years, every year, they'd sit around the table and they would tell the story. Let's remember, let's remember this. And then about 1,300 years later, after remembering the story year after year, someone called John the Baptist says something quite peculiar. He sees Jesus walking towards him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What did Jesus have to do with the Lamb? And how on earth was he going to take away the sins of the world? And let's skip ahead then a little bit to when Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. You can read about it in Luke chapter 22. On the night that he was betrayed, he says the following, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Important words there. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus brings some clarity here on why this night was a night to remember. So at the Passover meal, still like this in um, Jewish custom, there's a presider. And the presider is the person who explains the meal and sort of leads the conversation and the, and the, the questioning and the and telling of the story. 
And so in this final meal with his disciples, we see Jesus taking the role of the presider and he injects new meaning into this ancient story that they've been remembering year after year. When Jesus takes the bread to give to his disciples, instead of saying, this is the bread of our affliction, referring to their time as slaves in Egypt, he says the following, this is my body given for you, my body that will suffer affliction on your behalf. It's not about the affliction that we experienced in Egypt. It's about my body that's going to experience affliction on your behalf. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me, which would have probably come as a little bit of a shock because the Passover meal isn't about you, Jesus. <laughs> it's actually about us being rescued from Egypt. So now what's happening here? It's a pretty bold claim that Jesus is making, telling them, you need to now do this in remembrance of me. He's essentially claiming to be God. So up until now, we've been doing this in remembrance of God and how God rescued his people. And he's saying, no, now when you have the bread, this is now my body that is broken for you. Now do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the wine and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The blood that saved the Israelites on that night was the blood of a lamb. Jesus is the lamb. And it is his blood that protects us from the judgment of God. He is the substitute. This idea of substitution that's been raised in the Old Testament. Jesus is the final revelation of that. I wonder if um, the words about Jesus saying, I'm about to suffer. This is my body that's going to be broken for you. It's my blood. I wonder if those words of coming, upcoming suffering maybe made the disciples think of Isaiah 53, which speaks about the promised Messiah coming. Let's look at those words that Isaiah wrote. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. There's that word. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb. There we go. There's the lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers are silent, so he did not open his mouth. He is the perfect blameless one. You know, they had to find that lamb without spot or blemish that had, they, they weren't allowed to break any of its bones. The lamb was to be killed at twilight. That was all true of Jesus. He was killed at twilight. Not a bone of his was broken, even though with crucifixion, that was generally the, one of the steps in the crucifixion. And just, and at his death, there was absolute silence. Like Abraham, God also took his firstborn son up the mountain. But this time, there was no one there to put a stop to it. And God did not respond with a rescue plan like he did when the Israelites cried out to him, rescue us from slavery. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was silent. He left him. He left Jesus to experience and feel the full weight of his wrath and judgment for the sins of the world. And just like the lamb saved the firstborn from dying in the 10th plague, so Jesus, who is both the lamb and the firstborn son, saves us from the death our sins deserve. And that passage in Isaiah, the verse 6, 
Can you pop it there? There it is. Verse six is such a good reminder uh, that we have all turned our own way. We have all decided that we are Lord of our own lives. We've all opted to do things our way rather than God's way. We do that day after day after day. And remember I said, freedom's not about having no rulership over your life. True freedom is about having the right rulership over your life. And so let us today, church, this morning, let us freshly ask God to be the Lord of our lives. Let us be willing to go wherever he calls us. And so maybe there's someone here who would say up until now you haven't put your trust in God. I would say today's a really good day to go to him to tell him you believe in him, you trust him, you've seen he has revealed himself. What he says will happen does happen. He can be trusted. Won't you go before him today and ask him to take over rulership of your life? And then for those of us who really believe in Jesus, I have two things to say to us. Firstly, are you dressed to go walking with God? Do you have your sandals on, your staff in your hand, your cloak tucked into your belts? One commentator describing that scene said they were dressed ready to go walking with God, which was exactly what was about to happen. And it wasn't going to be an easy stroll through a beautiful forest. In fact, it was going to be harsh. It was going to be incredibly difficult. But as Paul will teach next week, they weren't out there on their own when they left Egypt. They had a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that led them. And today we have the Holy Spirit. The question is, are you walking with God? Are you following the Holy Spirit's promptings? And then secondly, are you a person marked by joy? In chapter 12, when they talk about celebrating the Passover, they, they use that word celebrate three times. It's, it's supposed to be something that you enjoy, that you, you it's, a, it's a fun celebration. One past a preacher said, God's people can be forgiven a lot, but not dullness. Have you become dull? <laughs> Where's your joy? And it's not joy in circumstances. It's joy in the fact that we've been set free. We're no longer in Egypt. We're no longer slaves. The power of sin and death has been broken. We have an eternity with God to look forward to, where there will be no more pain and suffering, um, brutal regimes taking over. We have so much to look forward to. It's something to celebrate. We need to carry that joy with us every single day. And so I'm going to invite us now, those of us who call ourselves believers, to take communion. This is a, um, a moment where we get to celebrate today what God has done on our behalf. Um, and then I'm going to walk us through uh, communion together. So up you get, uh, there's some bread and, and juice in the front and also at the back, and then I'll take it from there.
Great, looks like everybody's ready. Can I ask you to stand, please? You'll see Nana, why I need you to stand. <laughs> it's been incredible for me just reading up about the Passover and how, um, you know, how Jews celebrate the Passover. The symbolism is just so rich. And so I wanted to share some of it with you uh, today as we take communion. So firstly, communion is a family meal. Passover, sorry, is a family meal. It's in homes, it's around tables. It's to be taken as a family and so when we take communion together here on Sundays, this is a family meal. As much as it is about you remembering what God has done, it is about looking left and right and looking around you. Look at these people. <laughs> this is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. And that's why it's so important um, that we come, that we gather together on Sundays or um, in person or on Zoom. It's so important that we come together. You all know family meals are not quite the same when half the family doesn't pitch up. So we are a family, we get to take this meal together. And then another one of the aspects of the meal is that um, the, the wine and the bread are to be consumed while reclining. And I've often read that word and just thought, interesting word, like we don't really use it much, you know, come through and recline. We don't use it in, in our um, speaking to one another. But it's very important because the... In those days, only royalty or nobility could actually recline at meals because the slaves would have to stand while the others could enjoy being seated and, and eating their meal. And so when Passover is celebrated, it's important to celebrate the fact that their status is no longer that of a slave. They can now sit. They are now royalty. They are now nobility. They are no longer slaves. And as God's children, we too are royalty. We are invited into his presence right now as sons and daughters. So let us rest in that new status. So you may be seated. <laughs> you may sit down and you may rest. Enjoy the fact that you are free. You are not a slave. Let's rest in what God has done on our behalf. And so I'm going to ask the question that was usually asked by the youngest member at the table. Why is this night different from all other nights? And it is the night that God rescued his people. When Jesus took the bread, so we can take the bread now, instead of saying this is the bread of our affliction, he said this is the bread, this is my body that is broken for you, my body afflicted on your behalf. You may eat the bread now. And then the juice or the wine. So at the Passover meal, I was quite surprised to see you, you consume four glasses of wine each. Um, and each one is, it's a real celebration, you know? Each one represents one of the promises that God made of how he's going to deliver the people out of Egypt. And it came from um, that, that section of scripture from Exodus 6. We read it earlier. God heard their cry and he said, firstly, I will bring you out. Secondly, I will deliver you from slavery. Thirdly, I will redeem you through great acts of judgment. And fourthly, I will take you to be my people. So each time you have a glass of wine, you remember one of those aspects. When Jesus took the wine, what did he say? He said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Thank you, Jesus, that we can shelter under your blood, which you willingly poured out for us. And now we are redeemed because of the great acts of judgment that you faced on our behalf. And now we can be called your people. 
We are drawn into becoming God's people. Let us drink the juice together. And so the Passover meal <laughs> around the table in families and homes um, would conclude with singing, singing around the, in, the, in the family lounge, I think. And this is where Tim comes in. <laughs> We're going to have some family singing again. Um, let's do that. Let's stand now and let's sing together in response to what God has done.